Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies in lovely Cape Town, South Africa. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon, and we are thrilled to have you have、uh, a special guest today on the show because we're going to focus the entire show today on education and e-learning, and this is something that we haven't really spent a lot of time on the podcast about. But because we've got Stephen Haggard with us, I you know we're just thrilled to have him here, and he is an expert、uh, in e-learning. He was a contractor with specific experience、uh, with UNESCO, and that's going to be one of our topics of discussion today. And also what well what the Chinese are doing in Africa in the education. Educational space. We can talk about technology and also with、uh, volunteering as well. Stephen is joining us on the line from London. Stephen Haggard, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to the chat. Well, we're going to talk about、uh, three topics, as I mentioned. First,、uh, a, a deal that was just announced recently last week:、uh, an eight million dollar partnership between UNESCO and China to improve teacher training. Now, what's important about this is that this is the first time that UNESCO has participated with、uh, with China on these kinds of projects. This is the first direct financing of a UNESCO project, and it's important, I guess, in one sense because you know China has really steered clear of the traditional aid mechanism. And here we're seeing、uh, really just a full engagement with the very mechanisms that they said they would in the past did not really believe in. So we'll get Stephen's take on that. Then we're going to talk about the role of technology in the classroom, and this is something very important for the Chinese, in part because they are becoming an increasingly vital technology link、uh, in Africa. And we've talked about the Congo tablet, the Wei C, which was made in China, which is made in China.、Uh, we've talked about Huawei's presence, ZTE, the number of the different. Uh, infrastructure projects that are going on from the the Chinese telecommunication sector. So we're going to bring that into the classroom as well. And finally, we're going to talk about、uh, volunteers. There is,、uh, at least in the Chinese press, and we're going to separate kind of the propaganda from the reality. A growing presence of Chinese volunteers. Is it substantive? Is this just kind of you know puff pieces? And again, are they following、uh, the pattern of the West? Is this there? Should we expect a Chinese Peace Corps, if you will? So we'll get Cobus and Steve. Take on that first. Without further ado, let's start with this UNESCO deal and something that was very interesting. Cobus in this deal that was announced, it's an eight million dollar partnership. Cobus, tell us, give us a little bit of the background on the specifics of this deal, and then we're going to get Stephen to give us his analysis. Yeah, so this is an eight million dollar、um, partnership between China and UNESCO, funding.、Um, Teacher training initiatives in eight countries.、Um, the first three that are being rolled out is in Cote d'Ivoire,、uh, Ethiopia, and Namibia,、um, and then you know as they are already running, and then they are、um, going to be followed up by by a, a further you know kind of、um, list of central countries in Africa,、um, you know, and and it's it's、um, aimed at improving teacher capacity,、um, you know, looking at、um, you know improving the the kind of、um, teaching of teachers the. You know, their training institutions.、Um, it will also focus a lot on internet、uh, communication technology,、um, using and you know how technology can be used to to improve teaching in Africa, and also the building of support networks. So I mean, it's it's very interesting. You know, kind of it's interesting as you said to see China kind of moving closer to UNESCO in the first place. So Stephen, this seems like a big deal. It seems again, first of all, eight million dollars is a sizable amount of money. It's a it's a it's a you know valuable project. 
project. Why is this important in, in, in terms of the China-UNESCO relationship? Okay, so I think it is uh, as important symbolically as it is in terms of any actual output that we will see from it. Uh, as you said, this is a relationship that didn't exist a few years ago uh, uh, as a funded partnership. Um, and so seeing China decide to set its educational initiatives in Africa in the context of the global development and education system is really new. China has been a player in African education, uh, quite a serious player for a very long time. Um, and uh, if you, you know, look back since the 50s, they have been doing quite ambitious things in terms of building educational links with China. And those are, uh, you know, really pretty, pretty significant in terms of the number of students involved, very significant compared to this uh, UNESCO initiative, which we still don't know a lot about, but it looks, uh, it looks like it is substantial. Um, so the importance here is not that we're going to see a huge impact on uh, teacher training in Africa, thanks to the Chinese investment in UNESCO, it's that uh, for the first time ever, the Chinese commitment to African education is happening in the context of the world institutional framework. So I teed you up with an easy question. Now I'm going to follow up with uh, with a more pressing question here. This this to me was a little bit of a surprise, frankly, because we've heard you know over the past 10 to 15 years about how the Chinese have criticized the Western aid system in Africa as being nothing short of a failure. I mean, they've talked specifically about you know uh, you know a trillion dollars over the past half century and very very little to show. The United Nations has been central to that aid agenda in Africa. Uh, I, for one, lived in the Congo for for some time. So saw the, the billions of dollars that the U.N. was spending there to largely great inefficiency and, and, and largely ineffectual. You know, there's really – it was a disgrace, to be honest with you. So the U.N. is, is to me, uh, not always the best deliverer of, of aid or of these types of services. So for China now to be embracing the very thing that they've criticized over the years uh, came to me as a bit of a surprise. What is the agenda for the Chinese to, to do such an about-face? That is absolutely the question here. And I think we have to ask how uh, serious is this commitment that they're making through UNESCO. And we just don't know yet. The actual figure on it, £8 million, is not a lot of money. Um, uh, it won't buy you much. I think what we have to uh, watch is, is the involvement that they're giving at the same level as the involvement they're giving in other educational technology spheres? Or is it just a bit of um, you know, hand-washing and token diplomacy uh, regarding China's position in the international community. So what interests me when I look at this to try and answer that question is that um, uh, they have in the first place committed to working with existing educational providers to deliver this program. And that's quite unusual for China. Um, by and large, they tend to want to do something their own way and they have their own ideas about how it should be done. So the fact that um, the framework here is to work with uh, colleges and governments and ministries in African nations is unusual and makes me wonder whether there might be something a little bit sort of, you know, political and tokenistic going on here. Um, on the other hand, when you look at the uh, framework that they're setting up for this, it, it has a very characteristic Chinese thoroughness. Uh, and they have identified four domains to intervene on uh, teacher recruitment, um, uh, a pre-service uh, domain where they're just trying to sort of sensitize people to the very idea of training for teaching, um, uh, uh, CPD, the actual training itself, and finally the post-training networks and knowledge sharing. Um, and in all four of these domains, they've identified the use of ICT, which has been a crucial factor in China's own uh, uh, increasing of its teacher core. 
at home. So there are definitely some Chinese flavours in this, even though they're working with local governments. And that might just suggest uh, that this is a new type of engagement in education for China, uh, and it's a genuinely new one rather than just uh, a little bit of uh, flag waving. Okay, so we'll give we'll chalk you up to the give them the benefit of the doubt. Cobus, what was your take on this story? Yeah, I was also very intrigued by it. You know, kind of what I was one of the things I was wondering, and actually I'd like to ask Stephen about that. Is you know so much of the educa- of Chinese education um, in in Africa that hits uh, you know the the kind of widespread attention um, relates to uh, initiatives like the like Confucius Institutes that do a lot of, of language teaching and a lot of, of Mandarin language teaching. Um, it, can, can you give us an idea of like what what the um, what kind of stuff they'll actually be teaching? It, you know, kind of is it is it going to um, is it going to be involved in you know in directing um, you know or strengthening Chinese China Africa relations or is it going to go into math and science? I mean, what kind of teaching are we talking about? Okay, well, that is, that is the crucial thing. Uh, what seems to, this seems to be about is that it is not actually any Chinese content in the training. It is simply Chinese funding and Chinese methods for delivering training, but the uh, curriculum and the syllabus that will be used for teacher development will be the local indigenous country um, uh, system. So effectively, they're putting their money behind local governments, policies on education, whatever those are. You know, uh, and we're not we're not seeing any element of Chinese content in this. Well, you know, what's interesting is when we think about Chinese teaching, for example, you know, that teaching is a very cultural thing. It's a very local thing. You know, here, um, you know, in one part of the world, it varies differently from another part. And this has been what some of the Americans have been criticized with their Peace Corps work is that they're bringing a very American sensibility to Africa, and that's not always compatible. So one has to wonder, too, if the, you know, the the Confucian style of teaching, which is rote memory, which is very traditional teacher-oriented, it's not a... uh, you know, not student-empowered type of, of learning that we have in the United States, and even now it's emerging in Europe as well. So it'd be interesting to watch, and in next year at this time, we'll bring you back and talk about kind of the style with which the Chinese uh, have are bringing to their, to their teaching programs in Africa. What's your thought based on what you've seen in the past about when the Chinese engage in teaching programs in Africa? Do they try to export the Chinese model, or are they adapting to local models? Um, so the instances that I've observed, which are relatively few so far, but the instances suggest that um, there are two modes of engagement. Either it's a tokenistic one, which is, yeah, I'll build a school, you run it, but we stay out of the content, we stay out of the classroom, uh, we don't want to really know what's going on there. Or there's a, a much more engaged uh, format that we're seeing in a few countries, particularly in Kenya, where the Chinese have not only funded and built the school, but they've supplied the staff. So we might have a principal and vice principal, half a dozen of the staff may be Chinese-trained uh, teachers. Um, uh, by and large, though, the Chinese have actually hung back from classroom content and they've said, no, we'll build buildings, we'll provide funds, um, and we'll employ local people. They haven't yet, um, at secondary level, engaged. But they have engaged very strongly at tertiary level and in universities. And there are 20-odd Chinese universities that have got very close partnerships with African universities. Um, there are 30,000 Chinese uh, Chinese um, China-based African students, you know, going through a university education admitted every year in China. Um, and you're seeing at the tertiary level a very strong sense of cultural content coming through uh, with that education. And I don't see any reason why they won't, in fact, once they get their teeth into this, start doing the same in the secondary sector. And if they do, I think they might find that the uh, traditional Chinese approach to learning, which is quite formulaic, quite a hierarchy-based, 
you know, quite, I am the teacher, I know it, you sit down and you learn it, will be relatively popular and easy to translate into a great many African settings. That's not necessarily a good thing, but that is rather the model of the, uh, you know, the run-of-the-mill African secondary school learning experience. Mm -hmm. If you've been in one of these schools in pretty much any African country, it is a very top-down hierarchical model of learning. So, Kobus, with that in mind, what do you think the Chinese could bring if they actually stepped up their game and did more than what appears to be just a token offering? I mean, $8 million is not going to move the needle on anything. But nonetheless, let's say this is a direction that the Chinese are going in. What do you think that uh, African education needs uh, that the Chinese could, could bring and could deliver where the, the West has failed largely? Well, I think we're, we're generally, we're, you know, kind of one of the biggest, the biggest issues is around math, science, um, you know, and, and, and technology-based, uh, you know, education. You know, in, in South Africa, those those um, indices are just just shocking. You know, you just just actually want to cry when you see the numbers of you know kind of the the, the past numbers um, in math and, and natural science. So, you know, I think obviously, you know, China is incredibly successful with that kind of education. Um, it's difficult to say whether they'd be able to translate the Chinese model into into success in Africa as well. I mean, I, I think it would take massive, massive investment, if, you know, kind of, um, and real commitment. But I mean, I think Africa, pretty much they, you know, any help would be welcome on that on that front. Stephen, let's get to this question of the technology. This is something that keeps coming up when we talk about the Chinese in Africa. In part, we've seen Huawei do a number of initiatives in, in Ethiopia, in Ghana, in a number of different countries where they are giving away free technology. They're also, you know, just Huawei's presence alone is allowing for interconnectivity that we didn't see uh, uh, you know, ever before on a scale we've never seen before. So even if it's not directly related to technology, it's enhancing technology. Uh, but, you know, I, I come to this with a very cynical point of view because in, in the United States, we oftentimes, you know, use technology as a replacement for anything substantive. Technology, in my view, is just a tool. It's not a solution. Uh, so you've just returned from Ghana and from Burkina Faso, and you've been in schools. How can Chinese technology help in the learning process, or is African education largely across the continent, you know, with a broad brush generalization, um, really in need of far more basic fundamental things like desks and paper and good teaching, and technology is something supplementary? Uh, Okay, so I think there are several areas where we're going to see the influence of um, uh, China in Africa actually affecting the kind of education that goes on, uh, without a doubt. Um, I think actually it's probably not going to be in the first place in classrooms in secondary and primary school over a very, you know, there may be one or two token schools which manage to get IT suites in some of the richer countries. But I don't think we're seeing a very large um, scale effect there. Where you are, though, is in um, adult professional learning. And this is an area where China has really led the way. Um, They have successfully shown how you can retrain and give industrial skills to millions of people in very short spaces of time using uh, appropriate ICT infrastructure and appropriate um, uh, technology and uh, pedagogy. And I'm sure that you're going to see this happening uh, in Africa. The big vector here is obviously the mobile. Um, and the cost of mobiles are plummeting and the cost of mobile networks is plummeting, thanks very much to China's uh, investment. And these are, this is a channel in which agile education uh, content flows very freely already in Africa. There are some very exciting undertakings already for training, particularly in rural areas, that deliver huge beneficial effects to those who receive them. And those are the things I've been looking at uh, recently in Burkina Faso and in Ghana. 
And it's interesting if you look at the Huawei um, uh, uh, play, for example, in Tanzania that uh, they recently announced. Uh, their play there is to sponsor um, uh, IT students so that there is a, a strong and creative uh, IT industry in uh, Tanzania. Now, why are they doing that? Well, they've realized that the sales of their, their smartphone, their African smartphone, uh, it's a $99 model, really depend on having strong localized content. That's what makes people want to buy that phone. Um, and there needs to be a local content industry, and that means they've got to train those people because they aren't there yet. So I think you're seeing a, a, an interesting virtuous circle beginning to uh, take shape in which uh, China funds not only the networks and the handsets, but also the skills in the local population uh, to create rich content training services. And I think you might see in the next three or four years that uh, some of those very innovative um, social uh, adult learning services on the mobile phone that uh, Africa has pioneered will become quite closely integrated with the Chinese companies that are providing the technology, the networks, and even now beginning to stimulate the skills base uh, for the content. Yeah, you know, this is absolutely fascinating because uh, this is another example of what, you know, specifically China has to bring. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had with Western aid workers, uh, both in, in Europe and in Africa, where they summarily dismiss the Chinese, uh, that they, you know, what could they bring to this? You know, this is an authoritarian, totalitarian, awful system. How could they help, you know, the, the poor suffering Africans that we're here to help? And what I think is so interesting is that, Af that China itself has... Uh, a very long and successful history of rural education, and particularly using ICT in that in that education, uh, that's been very effective at bringing up the countryside and educating girls and women in particular. So I think that is uh, you bring some some very interesting anecdotes there. Uh, you know, Cobus, when when we look at this uh, at the role of technology, um, I, you know, Stephen brings up this point on an adult education, which I had not think about because I think education. I always somehow think primary, secondary, uh, even tertiary. Um, where do you in, in a place like South Africa, which is, is obviously more developed, but again has one of the highest Gini coefficients in the world, what do you see that, that China's role and contribution could be there, particularly when we've talked about all of the other politics that have con, you know, confounded uh, China's role in, in South Africa? Is there any role for them to participate there? Yeah, I think it's a massive role. Um, you know, so, so one of South Africa's problems is that um, per, it's, it's per capita um, expenditure on education is, is among the highest in the world with the lowest output, um, you know, the, the lowest kind of result um, for, for its investment. And one of the biggest problems there is the low um, quality of teachers and, you know, kind of that they just don't have a lot of um, qualifications. So I think South Africa would probably, I can well imagine South Africa's already investigating, um, you know, kind of how the Chinese actually managed to, to to do this kind of massive amounts of, of in massive numbers of teachers that, they, that they've trained. I mean, um, Stephen, the one the one um, report that you sent us said that they they managed to train about three million teachers um, in you know uh, in rural areas in, in China. I was wondering, like, how did they do it? I mean, how how what kind of training was that, and like, how did they actually get all those people to yeah to, to kind of to drag themselves up by their bootstraps? So how did that actually happen? Uh, okay, so um, China is actually very innovative, I think. And it was in I just want to come back to something you were saying a little bit earlier, Eric. Um, uh, people do underestimate, uh, largely through ignorance, the power of the Chinese educational system and the offer that it has for um, Africa in particular, I think. Mm -hmm. This is a system that can look at a problem like we need another 3 million teachers in five years and say, okay, so we do it this, 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 and this. They're not frightened of those kind of numbers. 
Um, uh, so one of the interesting um, strong areas of Chinese experience is on rural education, um, and they have uh, looked at ways of using ICT, distance learning, um, uh, local uh, learning centers. Um, quite often the innovations are social rather than technological. So there's a project um, that's been running since 2004 in China called One Village, One College Student, uh, which is one of those sort of nice, pithy Chinese uh, kind of aphorisms for summing up what it really is. Uh, and it's a program to, in every single village in some of the uh, Western and less developed areas, take one single person who is trained by distance learning uh, or blended learning to um, degree level and becomes an advocate for um, passing higher skills into uh, that village environment. That person might be the teacher. They might be a lead farmer. Um, uh, but you're seeing that um, by the judicious use of technology and the right kind of social engineering, they're able to identify individuals who want to come forward um, and train and be supported for training at very large scale. Uh, and they can deliver these, uh, thing, uh, these things at this sort of scale because of the investment that they've made in the technological infrastructure and in the university infrastructure in rural areas. So they don't have any problem, really, in identifying a rural area and training people up, even if they don't have uh, secondary-level training, to be at teacher level. And I think we should look at their technological as well as their social innovations here um, and seeing that they may have ways to solve the kind of problems that Africa is facing. So what kind what, – what, um, I'm sorry. Just to, what, what, When we look at the, how the Chinese are, are engaging these programs – how do they differ from how the West does it? So what is that? Is our Western uh, listeners who, who are involved in the NGO sector, what can they learn from what the Chinese are doing in this space? And so, you know, can you just give us a little bit about if I, you know, we hear in the, in, in the West about sustainable development, capacity building. These are all the buzzwords of, uh, of, of Western, you know, development. What do the Chinese do that's different? Uh, I think one of the things that I see that's different is they spend a lot of time at the beginning on building consensus and creating very large coalitions of people aligned to the same idea. So they'll typically come up with an incredibly simple idea. Um, one village, one college student is an example, but there are many others, um, uh, where they will get all the potential stakeholders aligned through a long process of consensus building, and they will just hammer that for 10 years without stopping. Um, so you have consistency, you have duration, you have simplicity, you have the totality of the partnerships of people involved, which means that ideas which aren't necessarily very uh, brilliant or very deep or very uh, original, but are just um, uh, cleverly set in the right social and political context, get sustained over a long period of time and start producing very, very high numbers uh, of graduates at the end. In terms of the actual um, learning so context, what I've seen of Chinese uh, educational and e-learning content actually isn't impressive. I don't think they're teaching very high levels of skills or high levels of critical thinking. Uh, I don't think they're teaching um, uh, practitioners to be particularly original. Um, but they are teaching very systematically at very large scale and in a very sustained way. And that is what makes the difference. Um, sorry, I actually just wanted to ask a very naive question. Is, is once you have your one, your one college student now trained, how do you keep that college student in the village? I mean, you know, is, is, it, is there some form of, um, like, uh, you know, immigration, like, or, or, or migration control going on? Or is it, is it a kind of a social consensus, social contract situation? Uh, it's a social contract situation. The person that they're deciding to ed uh, educate is somebody who is embedded in the village already. They have their family and their uh, farm or their position or whatever it is there. And they're saying, right, 
that person is getting a university education and is then responsible for delivering degree-level skills throughout the village. Well, let's now move on to the human aspect of all this and the teachers themselves and the volunteers themselves. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know, just in the past week I've noticed, you know, two articles, and that's something that you don't see very often, on Chinese volunteers. And this is coming out of both Xinhua and China Daily. And there seems to be... Um, there's no coincidences in this world, as, as Kobus and I have talked about. When there's a flurry of, of coverage on a particular topic, there's usually an agenda behind it. So somewhere out there, there's a PR person who's very happy to see the China Daily promote all these, volu- these Chinese volunteers going into, uh, into Africa. So one has to raise the question, uh, just as we talked about at the top of the show, are the Chinese following a model that, uh, in this case, maybe they didn't criticize as, as strongly as they have the aid model, but are they following the West? model of sending volunteers to Africa akin to uh, what the, the Peace Corps is for the United States, what uh, you know the UK and Canada, pretty much every major Western country has a volunteer program. And so the question I have for Stephen is, one, do you see the presence of Chinese volunteers or is this simply, you know, still, as we talked about, they're putting their, their toes in the water. This is the equivalent of the $8 million UNESCO. Um, you know, the, they're trying it out. It's something that's just starting. And my second question is is the competence of those volunteers if you've happened to run into them. So first question, is there something substantive behind this trend of volunteers, uh, Chinese volunteers? And B, are they actually uh, practical and applicable? Okay, so on the first one, I think consistent throughout everything we've been discussing today is this uh, sound that you can hear wherever you put your ear to the ground now in the African educational sphere, the sound of China limbering up to play a big role as a development and education partner in China, in Africa, I'm sorry. Um, you You aren't seeing the results at scale yet, but whether you're talking about university partnerships, school partnerships, and now you're raising volunteering, you are seeing a nation positioning itself for being a major player in uh, educational development. And I think we will see that story beginning to play out over the next um, two, three, four years um, with real traction on the ground. I suspect that the volunteers are, to a certain extent, a PR story. I'm not that impressed by the numbers that I've seen. And I've noticed um, that uh, China admits it has no capacity, really, for training the volunteers to give useful um, content while they're there. And quite often they're uh, talking about um, relationships with USAID or other um, non-Chinese volunteering organizations in order to give the training and the support. So there's no doubt that they themselves are aware that this is not yet a full-scale uh, grown-up operation. But it's definitely happening, and I think it's just one of those um, uh, pieces of long-term, far-sighted planning that's very typical of a Chinese approach, which says, okay, if we're going to be playing a big role in African education in five or ten years' time, where are the people who have had first-hand experience on the ground? Answer, they don't exist yet. So what do we do? We create a core and we send them out so that those guys will come back in five years having known what it's like to work in a village school in Africa. Yeah, I mean, you talk about no training. Uh, in, in one of the articles, they talked about how they get a week of training and then they're sent to Africa. And, and you know, this brings up, uh, you know, some of my own personal experience dealing with the U.S. Peace Corps people and how, uh, you know, just a nice anecdote I like to tell is that in Kinshasa, um, one of the uh, the organizations that accepted Peace Corps workers for several years, he genuinely thought, and he was serious when he said this, that he thought that the Peace Corps was a place where America sent its special kids. 
you know, he really thought it was place for the mentally disabled and because they were so out of their element. I mean, these were guys coming over talking about spreadsheets and they didn't speak the language and they didn't understand the culture. And here they're dropped into Rwanda and to Eastern Congo and places that they have no competence whatsoever. Um, and he just thought these guys are moronic. Uh, so one has to wonder again when you have a week of training or a month of training if, if this has any, any practicality. Kobus, let me ask you a question on the cultural front, and this is something that you might be able to relate from your Japanese experience as well. You know, in, in Confucian societies, for the most part, volunteering is not a, a, a cultural trait, much like it is in the West, where in the West, um, you know, rooted in a Christian, uh, you know, moral structure, volunteering often is something that is kind of prized. But it isn't one that's in, in either Japan, Korean, or, or Chinese society. So this idea of, you know, giving up a career, working for next to nothing um, in, a, in a place as exotic as Africa seems like a very big stretch to me from a cultural point of view. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I found it interesting for the same reason. In Japan, you, see, you frequently see a lot of, of volunteering within Japan, you know, kind of particularly after the, the massive earthquake um, two years, almost two years ago. Um, they, that spawned a new kind of volunteer um, infrastructure. Um, but, but of course, that has a lot to do with the nation itself, you know, kind of with helping other Japanese people. Um, that said, I think, you know, um, Japan has developed, an, you know, JICA, the, the International Volunteering Agency, which is very similar to USAID. Um, and, you know, it, it might be that the Chinese are also, you know, that, 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 that they see it as a, a necessary step for them to take, you know, kind of to take a kind of a more central, um, you know, role in the international community. Um, at the same time, I was wondering, and I'd actually like to ask Stephen about that as well, is um, obviously, you know, in America, volunteering is is very uh, integrated into the college system in the sense that, you know, it, it does help you in in these kind of crazy elite colleges that you need to, you know, with, with application essays and so on to indicate a certain amount of volunteering that you've done in the past. Do you see that the Chinese education system might start to accommodate some of that or is it still very much... That the moment you step out of that exam, uh, you know, kind of exam-based system, are you are these volunteers then lost out of the system forever? Are they giving up careers or are they building new careers? I, I think um, there's a transition going on here. I mean, when I've met um, uh, Chinese officials and um, businessmen in Africa, um, uh, they're kind of caught between um, a place where they see this as a bit like Siberia, and my God, I'll never get my um, uh, contacts and my uh, sort of network back in China working again after this. There's a bit of a sort of sense of it's the Wild West and a bit like a being condemned. But there's also um, increasingly, um, I've noticed stories where people are saying, you know, I have actually shown that I can run a big business, a big project, a big contract um, for my company in China, and I'm going back with laurels uh, back home. So we may be seeing a transition here where uh, within China, coming back from one of these uh, experiences that up to now has been a bit like political or cultural suicide, it could be becoming something that actually adds value to the individual. But I'm fairly confident here that this is actually um, much more about China um, repositioning itself for a long-term, long deeper relationship with Africa. Uh, and there's a comparison here I'd like to um, uh, bring in, which is um, a course in international relations, Masters, that's been uh, run by Peking and Tsinghua University. Um, where uh, they are specifically targeting African uh, elites to be trained in China in international relations Chinese style. 
Uh, and uh, they have built this course up now over the last couple of years, and they're doubling the numbers every year uh, of African students who are coming on this course. Um, now, that is quite exciting in terms of understanding where China really wants these relationships with African countries to go. They imagine these as deep, enduring relationships where people really to understand each other over a much longer period of time than the very short-term, hey, let's get in there and get the minerals out um, kind of engagement we've seen over the last 10 years. And I'm sure that the volunteering is part of that. The target of this volunteering is nothing to do with Africa. I don't think these guys are going to bring any uh, really significant or sensible development inputs to the places that they uh, happen to be stationed in their host countries in Africa. What they're going to go back with is all about what they bring China in terms of its ability to move in Africa and understand the way that um, politics, society and culture works in a continent which is clearly absolutely crucial to China's future. Yeah, there's no doubt. Cobus, call me skeptical on this one. You know, what's interesting about the U.S. is that you'll find at the most elite universities, from Tufts to Columbia to Harvard, you know, children of wealth and privilege who do not want to take advantage of that wealth and privilege to go into business uh, and all the connections that they have, but instead want to go running off to, to Africa and use the fact that they don't really need an income but to go and volunteer. I mean, it's incredible to see that the affluence that exists within the NGO sector. And, it, uh, you know, for me to see that in China would be just mind-blowing, that the children of wealth and privilege, for the most part, their their mission is to go in to extend that wealth and privilege uh, as far as possible. So I... I I think we're a ways away from seeing a trend in China towards volunteering and towards kind of foregoing, uh, you know, a, a career in business to go and, and go to Africa or go to anywhere to, to volunteer into the nonprofit sector. But just as Stephen said, I think that this might be the beginnings of a, of a geopolitical shift uh, towards something a little bit more sustainable in, in terms of China's Africa policy, which, as you and I have talked about, Cobus, over the years now. Uh, is, is is weighted far more towards mercantilism and commerce and, and programs like this seem to balance out, at least in the minds of some, the fact that China may not be uh, a so-called neo-colonialist country if they're undertaking projects like this. Let's just go around quickly for some final thoughts on this subject, the, you know, the, the whole educational space. Kobus, when you look at this, is it window dressing? Is it PR? Is it legitimate? What's your thought when you when you see all the developments that we've been talking about this past hour? I think it's probably a little from column A, a little from column B. You know, kind of it's it's probably is both a PR and you know and kind of to a certain extent an earnest attempt to actually get something done. Um, you know, I think one one should keep one's eye on individual projects in the first place. Um, you know, recently I've seen a lot of uh, the, the growth of this kind of like cocktail party philanthropy kind of, uh, you know, circuit starting to grow out of China as well. Um, so, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what develops. Um, you know, I think Africa has, you know, Africa needs a lot of help, you know, with, with education. And, and even in terms of just adding new languages, new ways of doing things, new kind of ways of thinking to the African educational landscape, that already helps. But, uh, yeah, we'll have to see what actually comes out of it. I think Africa will, you know, the, the better thing for Africa to do would be to copy China rather than to, to to receive help from China. I think copying China is the better way to go. Stephen, based on your experience and what you've just seen in Ghana and Burkina Faso, what can we expect next in the Sino-African educational exchange space? 
Yeah, I think we're seeing this really being driven uh, by China's own uh, educational expansion. I mean, China's educational system has been growing by over 12% a year for the last 15 years, sometimes as much as 15%, just in terms of the budget. So it's phenomenal growth. And there are already, you know, a good half dozen Chinese universities that are earning hundreds of millions of yuan a year just in private income. This is a sector that you know, half these companies are listed on the, uh, on the, you know, the American stock exchanges now, uh, in the education companies in China. This is a very big and very health sector, uh, healthy sector is education in China. And we just haven't really clocked that um, from where we observe it, particularly in the West. We haven't clocked the strong vitality of this uh, sector. And I think those guys are limbering up to go, go, go global. Um, so if you're in Ghana, you know, you're walking down the street and I just came across a Chinese university's business school. They've opened up to shop and they're training uh, African graduates to give them a Chinese university degree. You're going to see that everywhere um, uh, very soon. And that is bound to be good news, I think, for Africa, because the Chinese educational system is offering a fresh take, um, a very strong focus on quality and on value for money um, and a very strong focus on technology. And it has the methods um, from its own history of very rapidly increasing its scale uh, without totally sacrificing its quality. That is what Africa needs, um, and that is what those guys are when they get their confidence and their uh, model um, absolutely sort of ready to launch. That is what these guys from China are going to be offering. Uh, And although most people are very gloomy about the prospects for um, a highly educated African population, and I am too often, I think one of the few bright hopes looking forward to the next five or ten years, is that China will be getting out of this warming up and limbering up phase that we've been talking about today and saying, right, go for it. Let's talk about educating three million teachers. It's mind-blowing because this has not been something that I've thought about that much, but as as what you've said, it's coming. I don't think most people in the West fully appreciate the scale with what you're talking about and the fact that the Chinese are actively figuring out business models and, and, and different types of approaches for the educational space, adult education in particular, uh, and it's a space I think that's critical for people to follow and to keep an eye on. Uh, Stephen, if people want to follow some of the work that you're doing, is there a way that they can follow you either on Twitter or on other social networks or on a website in particular, just because this is what you've talked about is absolutely fascinating. Uh, yes, yeah, so I um, uh, tweet on Stephen D-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-D-H, um, and some of the work I've been doing for China UNESCO, uh, if you look under the, if you Google under I-E-R-D, that's um, uh, I-C-T for Education and Rural Development, UNESCO. Um, you'll see a set of case studies that I've been doing there for uh, UNESCO in Beijing, uh, where I've been you know, looking around at best practice in African ICT, um, adult education in particular. And that's part of China deciding to say, hey, we need a good body of case studies here. We under- need to understand what's going on in Africa so that we're prepared to go for it. And they're, uh, you know, they're, they're quite ambitiously trying to position themselves as a country uh, that knows what's going on in the African education space. So uh, if you just Google that, you'll find uh, work that I've been doing with uh, uh, UNESCO Beijing there. Well, we're going to go ahead and post that on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. If you haven't come to the page in a while, we're over 17,000 strong, I think 17,400 right now. Uh, What's fascinating about it and what's fantastic about our page is that it's largely African young people. So this is a fantastic place to engage in discussion and debate. And we're going to post up some of the articles that Stephen recommended today and get your take uh, on, uh, on Chinese educational initiatives in Africa. Once again, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. 
Ann, uh, who's normally with us, Cobus and myself, we're all posting on it. But in the meantime, Cobus, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? They can find me at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me at E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting almost every day on the Top China Africa headlines. I'm also participating on our Facebook page as well. And if you want to follow the podcast, uh, we're available in all the key places, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and of course on iTunes where you can subscribe. We'd love to have you, uh, you know, leave us a few comments, what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. Of course, that helps us. Our goal is to one day show up on the homepage of uh, of the iTunes homepage so that we can get uh, a lot of visibility, and that only comes by a few comments, so your support is always appreciated. Uh, in the meantime, find us on Facebook and on Twitter, and we're, we'll be back again next Sunday with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening.